Good morning, church. I was going to make a joke about turning to Philippians, but um, you can turn to Judges. It's in the Old Testament. If your book falls to Philippians, you're going to have to turn quite a way back. Um, This sermon actually uh, started in Lesotho. Um, We were on the drive up. And I knew I had to preach that night, and it was one of those days where um, I was still reading the text and saying, Lord, please, (laughs) um, give me something to say to the church. And um, he did, and now my privilege is to be able to bring it to you this morning. I think he's saying it to you too. Thanks, man. I want to just lay some context in this book of Judges. Um... It's important to understand where we are. Judges follows Joshua, and Joshua is the successor to Moses. Moses sinned when he hit the rock with the water, uh, and the water flowed out, but he was angry that day and smashed the rock. He wasn't meant to. He was just meant to tap the rock, and the water was going to flow. And God Uh, rebuked him, and and God said to Moses, you're not going to see the promised land. And even though Moses begged, and there would be multiple times along the way where Moses would ask God if that still stands, it came that the only thing God would let Moses do was look at the land. They got as close as the border, and Moses was allowed to go up on the mountain and look. But he died, and Joshua succeeds him, and Joshua is the one to lead the people across the Jordan River. The same thing happens that happened uh, at the Red Sea. The waters part, and uh, the nation of Israel cross into this land that has been promised for so long. And the whole book of Joshua is this wonderful, uh, you know, if if your kids want to find, if you've got sons, I should say, who want to find, like, battle stories, uh, Sebastian loves Joshua, because it's just a a book full of war and fighting and, and God's people usually winning. And then Joshua dies and most of the land is taken. It's not taken in its entirety the way it was meant to. Most of it is taken. Some of the people that were meant to be wiped out uh, were left and they end up infiltrating certain cities and it becomes a mixture of culture. It's people that want to follow God, people that want to follow the, the gods of the other people, people that want to do both, living in compromise, going between two spaces. And God's people often find themselves turning from Him. And they will fall into um, oppression. The nations start to oppress them that are around them because they're disobedient to the Lord. The Lord said, if you walk in my ways, then it will go well with you and I will bless you and you will enjoy the land in its fullness. But if you uh, turn against me, then the same things that have happened to the people you've uh, beaten, that was judgment upon them for the way that they were living. Those things will happen to you. And unfortunately in Judges, we see God's people regularly drift away from the Lord. And then they would, after a time of oppression, pray and say, God, we're sorry, um, we want to uh, follow you again, uh, forgive us, and, and God would be merciful and gracious, and he would send them a judge. And the judge would deliver them from the hands of the people that were oppressing them, and there would be a period of peace. And where we find ourselves in Judges chapter 9, I don't think there's many sermons on this chapter, 
I've called the sermon Lessons from Abimelech, not a very famous name. Abimelech is Gideon's son. Gideon was a judge that the Lord used to deliver Israel from the hands of Midian with just 300 men. Um, he wiped out a massive army and God got much glory uh, through him. Gideon's famous for hiding in a, uh, a wine presser, I think it was, uh, afraid. And he's down there and the angel of the Lord comes to him and says, uh, great and mighty warrior. And Gideon says, I think you got the wrong guy. I'm the weakest in my family. I'm in a family that's the weakest in our clan. I'm in a clan that's in the weakest in our tribe, in a tribe that's, and so on. And the angel of the Lord says to him, um, I'm going to use you to deliver the people of Israel from the hands of Midian. And so Gideon's quite famous. I think some of you are familiar with his story. But you may be not familiar with what happens next. And before we read Judges chapter 9, which is post-Gideon, I want to read two verses to you from Judges chapter 8. That sum up Gideon's life in a nutshell. Judges 8.23 on the screen for you says, Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. After Gideon had found much success, what happened was the people came to him and wanted to make him king. And in this moment, we see Gideon on the right track because it wasn't for the people to have a king. God was their king, and he could see that. And not only did he pronounce, I won't be your king, even my, this is very interesting for where we're going to go in the story, even my son will not be king over you. God will be king over you. In this pronouncement, we see the heart of Gideon to be for the Lord and to point the people towards the Lord. He is your king. He is the one that you look to. And then four verses later, Judges 8.27, And Gideon made an effort of it and put it in his city in Oprah. And all Israel poured after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So what Gideon does is, he, straight after he says, God's going to be your king, he then asks everyone for silver, and they give him a ton of silver, and then he melts it and shapes it into this effort, and they start to worship it. That's what that means. They hoard after it. They start to worship that thing instead of God. It's fascinating. Verse 23, the Lord is your king. He won't take on the role of king. It's, it's very... Uh, gracious of him, pointing the people to God. Four verses later, pointing the people towards something else. And they all follow him into it, including his family. And so we come to Judges chapter 9. His son, Abimelech. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubal, Jerubal is another name for Gideon went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jeroboam rule over you, or that one rule over you? 
Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal, Bereth, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Oprah and killed his brothers, the son of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the fig tree, you come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the vine, you come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, you come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, if in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jeroboam and his house, and have done to him as his deeds deserved, for my father fought for you, and risked his life, and delivered you from the hand of Midian, and you have risen up against my father's house this day, and have killed his sons, seventy men on one stone, and have made Abimelech the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative. If you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Jeroboam and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech, and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech, and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo, and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to beer, it's a place, not a liquid, and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. I'm going to stop there. We'll revisit how Abimelech's story ends in a moment, but there's already some lessons that I think we can take from this life uh, of Abimelech. My first point for you this morning is a compromised faith will impact the next generation. Gideon was a man of God who served God and fulfilled fulfilled the purposes God had for him in his time. But like many, as he got older, he backslid. He allowed things to come into his life and into his home and into his family that were wrong, and he did nothing about them to change it. And the impact 
on not just his own life, but on his community and on the generation to come, on the future, was massive. And Abimelech grows up in a home of compromised faith. He doesn't see the Gideon of old who won wars and fought for God and the one who would say to the people of Israel, you don't need me to be king. God is your king. He grows up in a home watching his father worship a man-made object. And Gideon probably would have verbally said, I still follow the Lord, but what he was visually doing was the opposite, and that's what Abimelech grew up and saw. The town of Shechem, where Abimelech was from, was a compromised town. The Canaanites were living there. The Canaanites served Baal, and Baal worship was prevalent. And so Abimelech would have grown up amongst the people who on one hand would worship God in one day, and then the next be serving their Baals. And that's the the environment this young man grows up in. And I have to ask you, parents, are you thinking when you make decisions about the impact that it's going to have on the ones that will follow behind you? In church, we often have to go and speak to people and we can see something where they're moving in the wrong direction. And um, Proverbs says, go and snatch the one who's in the fire from the fire. It's tough as a pastor to have to go to a congregant and say, um, this part in your life is not lined up with Scripture. You're in trouble here. But we have to do that. And the sad thing is, it's not just your life that you're not taking into account here. There's going to be consequences If you continue to disobey God and move in this particular direction, your children are going to grow up watching you live opposite to what God intends. That will have a massive impact on them. We're all ultimately responsible for our own decisions. Don't hear me wrong, parents. I'm not saying you're to blame for everything that your children will end up choosing to do. But the reason why we take dedication so seriously and we stand before the church and we say we will bring them up in the ways of the Lord is because parents have a massive role in providing the right environment to allow God to come and speak to our kids and um, uh, teach them His ways and that they may follow in His ways, I, I hope, as we do. Can you say that when you look at your life, that you hope your children Grow up and follow the Lord in His ways, the way you do. If you can't, then this is an area the sermon's warning you on this morning, and you need to go to the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, where am I compromised? Because it can happen even to the godly. Gideon was godly. He was a hero of the faith. God used him. And there's some of you sitting here who... Maybe at one time you were walking well in the ways of the Lord. What have you allowed in? What have I allowed in that is compromising me? And am I aware of the impact that's going to have on the ones coming after me? The second lesson I see in Abimelech is that unchecked desires may lead to ruin. 
Abimelech had a desire to be king. He saw a leaderless people, and they were not doing well. Shechem was not going well. It was a mixed group. They were, everyone was doing their own thing. And I'm sure he justified his thinking within himself and his ambition to say, they need leadership. Gideon hadn't done a great job. And once Gideon had died, Abimelech saw a vacuum. He saw an opportunity. And we don't know what his justifications were, but he had this ambition to be king. And he goes to the people of Shechem, and his mother was from Shechem. And he says, I'm one of you. Now, in his family, this is also quite interesting. I don't know if you picked it up. It said his mother was a concubine. She's not a legitimate wife. Gideon had 70 sons. Did you pick up on that? 70 sons? We have no idea how many hundreds of children. Okay? He didn't only have sons. He would have had girls. It's not mentioned. Okay? Maybe he had 100 plus kids. Maybe he had 140. Maybe it was one or two. He was a busy man. Okay? He had many wives and concubines. Abimelech was not from a wife. He was from a concubine. So he has the genes of Gideon, but he doesn't, he's, doesn't have the full rights. And he very cleverly goes to his own people in Shechem, where his mom is from, and says to them, this isn't working very well having 70 people lead by committee. Choose me. I'm one of you. And it seemed right to them. And he goes and he kills all of his rivals with one stone. 70 brothers on one stone. What was his problem? I don't see at any point in his journey him ever going before the Lord and saying, God, is this thing that I feel and that I want from you? And church, when I look at you and I look at me, sometimes I see us making that exact same error. We can have a strong desire to go somewhere and do something, and we can justify it, but we're not necessarily good at going before the Lord and praying and seeking Him and saying, Lord, is this thing from you? Because if it's not from you, I don't want to go there. I want you to sanctify it. I want you to take it from me. On the other hand, if this is from you, that, that's confirmation to go with courage. So why it's so important to get God's uh, word on these desires that we have. If I just want to speak about Lesotho for a moment, um, there's two things going on in my heart about Lesotho. One of them is I want to see God's kingdom come. That is healthy. I don't need to do too much introspection there to know that this is a God thing. On the other hand, when I pray about it a little bit, God puts his finger on some other stuff there. Mark, do you want to make a name for yourself? Do you want people to think you're doing a good job? Do you want advance to be impressed with you? And when I spend some time checking these desires in prayer, the Lord speaks and he helps me. And I can go, Lord, this thing, not from you, sanctify it. But I don't stop going after the thing I already know God's told me to do. 
Because the enemy subtly using two things over here. Oh, if you're doing this all for you, then stop doing it, and he wins. Too many of you stop doing something God actually wants you to do because you're aware that there's some unholy desire in there. And instead of just praying through that and letting God work that out in you and then hearing his voice courageously going after what he wants you to do, you back off. We've got too many Christians backing off things God has put in front of them to go and do for him. We must check our desires with the Lord. Weasby says it better than me. I don't know if I'm saying his name right. Weasby. He says, of itself, ambition isn't an evil thing, provided it's mixed with genuine humility and is controlled by the will of God. If it's God's wind that lifts you and you're soaring on wings that he's given you, then fly as high as he takes you. But if you manufacture both the wind and the wings, you're heading for a terrible fall. Abimelech should have prayed. He should have asked God. The way his dad was able to discern, God, do you want me to be king? I want to be king. Do you want me to be king? It could have saved him from a lot of pain. The third lesson I see in Abimelech's life is, as much as he was ungodly, we see no evidence in the text, unlike his dad who walked in God's ways at one point and then uh, uh, backslid, Abimelech seems to grow up totally oblivious of God. Or caring about him at all. And I find it very interesting that God still, you might not read it this way, but I do. My third point is this. Heed God's warning. Because one of the 70 sons survives. Jotham is hiding. And they can't find him. And then on the day that Abimelech is coronated, Jotham stands on a mountain. And the acoustics must be fantastic because the city heard him. And he prophetically warns Abimelech and Shechem. God sends them a warning. Even though they are totally not walking in his ways, not following him at all, don't know him, not seeking him, God is still faithful to send warnings to people that are out of line with what he wants. And you might be sitting here in a compromised position. Maybe the Spirit's put his finger on it. You might be sitting here um, realizing there's some stuff in your heart you're going after and actually you haven't prayed about it. You don't actually want to pray about it because you don't want to be stopped. And then what will happen is God will warn you. He will send you a Jotham. He'll send you someone to speak to you from the mountaintops to say, and Jotham said to them, if you have acted in integrity, if you have done this at the Lord's leading, then the Lord will bless it. And it will go well with you. But if you have not acted in integrity, if you have done this in and of yourselves, then the way that you've taken this kingdom, the exact same thing will happen to you. It's a warning. It's an opportunity for Abimelech to hear and go, he's right. I didn't seek the Lord. I'm not in the right place. There's still time for this thing to get fixed if you will heed God's warning. That's what happens in Nineveh. 
Jonah goes there. He doesn't want to go there, but God tells him, go and warn the people. He says, I don't want to do it. And he shows up and he does it. And because he warns them of the coming destruction, they will be destroyed, Nineveh. Because they heed the warning and listen, even though the prophet didn't want them to. So even on a message with the motivation not accurately, I don't know how Jonah did this. I don't know if he mumbled this warning so that they wouldn't hear it properly. But still, their heart was inclined to listen to the Lord and heed his warning and change their ways, and they were saved. And God sends a Nathan to David, who is totally out of line with what God wants him to be doing, and is oblivious. He's, uh, for a year, been walking in the wrong direction, sinfully away from the Lord. The man of God, the man who worshipped God, the man who heard God, went for a year in the wrong direction, and only came right because someone else came and warned him. And he listened. And there's some warning for you, church. This is the unction I feel for you in the sermon. This sermon is a warning to you. Heed God's warning. There's time to change it. There's time to get it right. Abimelech will not heed the warning of God. My last point before we read the final bit of the text. God will give you some time to repent. And I'm emphasizing that word some. Because sometimes I think we feel like we've got all the time in the world to repent. For Abimelech, it was three years. For three years, he's going swimmingly. He's reigning, he's ruling, life's working out great. Jotham's word on the mountain looks false. Every single one of those 1,000 days is an opportunity to heed the warning and repent. God will give you some time to repent. And the New Testament tells us that his kindness leads us to repentance. I want to be a believer who is soft-hearted to the Lord, listening to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and walking in repentance. When was the last time you repented? He's giving you some time to repent. And you'll be amazed what some people have come back from. There's a um, lady who became a porn actress, one of the, you know, porn stars. And what's so interesting about her story is that there's this point where she walks away from it, grew up in a Christian home, walks away from this uh, very successful life in some ways, financially, definitely, and comes back to home and repents and tries to walk with the Lord, meets a guy who convinces her to go back. And she goes back to the industry and reads her Bible before the, the sets. She lives this compromised life of going to hold on to God and still read my Bible and still pray and seek Him, and still go and do this other thing. 
which is so clearly out of line with what God wants. But as humans, we can get to this compromised place of living this way. And she's reading on flight to a set, Revelations and the warning of Jezebel. When Revelations, it says, I have given them some time to repent of their sexual immorality. And the Spirit hits her in that moment, and she realizes what she's doing wrong. She finally heeds the warning completely. You know what she is doing today? She's a pastor. She's a pastor's wife. They minister together. She has completely returned to the Lord and rejected her former ways. She has heeded the warning. She has repented. People have come back from much, everyone. What is God asking you to turn away from? Abimelech won't repent. Let's read how his story ends. It would be helpful if I wrote the verse number down over here. In verse 50, so just jump, we're going to skip, um, otherwise we won't get to the end of the, the text. Then Abimelech went to Tebez and encamped against Tebez and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in. And they went up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And also, God also made all the evil of the house of Shechem return to their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. It's quite poetic what happens to Abimelech. He took one stone and he took the kingdom. And with one stone, it all ends. And as much as he wants to escape the shame of a woman killing him, it is written down in Scripture, and it is remembered in Samuel they speak about Abimelech as the man whom the woman killed. So the armor-bearer achieved nothing for him. He is shamed to this day, and this was avoidable if he had checked his desires before the Lord if he had heeded God's warning, and if he had repented. But unfortunately, he wanted to play the thing through and see if God will follow through with his word, and he does. But I want to end on an encouraging note. Because Abimelech um, took many cities this exact way that he's trying to take um, Tibet. Just before this chapter, we didn't read it, he goes into another city and the people run into a tower. Very interesting, it's called the Tower of Shechem. They run into the tower and he fetches a bramble and places it at the foot of the tower and starts burning it and he burns everyone alive in there. 
it works. This exact strategy is just tried here that fails has just worked. So of course, that means you don't have to you know, seek God on anything. Once something works, you just keep doing that over and over again, right? Hopefully you don't do that. You always seek the Lord. You don't just work on what has succeeded before. And now he's trying to do the same thing again. Fetch the bramble. Let's put it at the tower. This tower doesn't have the same name. This is called the strong tower within the city. And the people flee to it. And it's from this strong tower that this woman drops the millstone on his head and he dies. When I read that, I was reminded of this beautiful proverb. In Proverbs 18 verse 10, it says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and he is safe. And as much as this is a sermon on warning, and I think there's some stuff for you to, in prayer, chew on before the Lord. I also want to remind you this morning, God is your strong tower. He is that safe place you get to run to no matter what's happening. No matter what chaos might be unfolding, for the people in this moment, their whole world is falling apart because uh, their homes are being built down. People are being killed. They've just seen the neighboring city Raised, it says. It's flattened. And they run into the strong tower for protection. And God wants to remind you this morning, He is your strong tower. When He comes to warn you guys, He's not coming to berate you. He's not coming to uh, punish you. He wants you to turn from that thing that is pulling you away from Him. That is unsafe. And when you turn and you return and you repent and you come back to him, where are you going? You're going to a safe place. You're going to a strong tower. You're going to someone who can guide you, lead you, and protect you from anything. And there's nothing you can't come back from. There's nothing you've done today, church. You might, there might be something in your life you're not willing to tell anyone. But you know God knows. And you might wonder if there's any coming back from that. God, in his great mercy, sent his son Jesus to pay for every single sin and every single deed we will ever do. I spoke to a man once. He said to me, Mark, I was the first. We were at a meeting like this, and they said, if God's done a work in your life, come stand up and share it. Um, and for me, it was um, hard, but I had to stand up in front of everyone and say, I was a pornography addict for 17 years. And I've lived with you guys for six months, and none of you know this except my wife, because I told her in February, but this was June now. I'm standing up in front of you and saying, this is what God's done. And I'll be of no reputation in front of all of you to, to give God glory. I'd rather keep it hidden, but if it's going to bring God glory to say it, then I'm going to say it. And after I did that, the next person gets up. And this guy gets up and he says, I have never shared this with any living person. So he one-ups me because I shared it with one living person. He had never shared this with any living person. And he stands up in front of everyone in tears, weeping, but doing that thing Sarah was speaking about. 
that chain that's holding you, trapping you, just breaking in front of our eyes. When he goes, I killed my own baby. And he's weeping there. And he's going, I don't know how God can ever forgive me for that. But he can. And in repentance and confession that day, that man found freedom. I don't know what it is you know that's holding you. But God's saying to you this morning, you can come back from anything. Heed the warning, church. Repent while there's still time. Run to your strong tower. Let's pray.